And welcome back. I'm Mike Charles, at home with artist Natasha Barnes and episode two of our podcast series, where we're heading into the studio today and uh, <laughs> saying hello to the cats and hello to the artist. She's here. Natasha, how are you today? Hi, Mike. I'm fine. How are the cats doing? Who have we got? Can we introduce the personalities? Well, who do you think is uh, sitting there on your keyboard? Well, uh, this must be, I know this face from Instagram, this tail, these paws. This must be Insta, Insta star. Is this Tabo? This is Tabo. And he's a really a special little boy in my life. He just pitched up here and he thought to himself, I'm going to have a very nice life if I stay in this house. And that's kind of how Tabu fitted into our family. He found you. He found he found me. Like art he, found you. He chose me. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you, you've got a great setup here. Very, very tranquil, very calm, very uh, light and airy. And a home studio, which is convenient <laughs> for, for someone who's creative and might find the muse strikes at uh, any hour of day or night. Yep, correct. But for me, it's very important to go to work. I think as any artist, you know, it's like a business. You run a business. Mm. So I... It's important for me to get up in the morning, do my chores, and then go to work. So I actually leave my house and go to my studio, which is outside. Fantastic. So you treat it with, with that level of, of routine and, and discipline? Yes, because that's the only way you're going to make a successful career. You, it's, you treat it like any other business, and you keep business hours. So most days, you'll find me in the studio by 8 o'clock. And that means I would have done all my emailing and done all my chores, been for my run, fed and watered myself and hitting the canvas. Brilliant. Now, for those that might have skipped or missed the first podcast and are jumping into episode two, let's quickly, in a nutshell, just introduce Natasha Barnes because you're more than just an artist. There's so many labels we can try and, and, and pin on you from, from chef to adventurer, author, and of course, visual artist. Today, we're, we're heading out of the kitchen, out of the frying pan, into the fire. No, actually into the studio. And uh, we're getting an inside look at your creative process. There's a, a lot happening, a lot of work in progress, a number of pieces. Are these currently commissioned works that you are in process with? Yes, Mike. And uh, the studio looks as it would look on any given day. There's always a lot of things going on there. I don't work on one project or one uh, particular thing at, a, at one time because there's a lot going on in my life and my business is sort of, it's cut in four pieces. So I'm always doing one of the four pieces I'm doing in the studio on any given day. So at the moment, one of the four pieces or one of the quarters um, I'm doing commissioned work for a gallery in Tokyo. So I'm hugely excited about it because it's a new gallery. Wow. They've been around for many years. Um, the, the owner is a collector herself. And one of my biggest art collectors in the world is Mr. Tolman, Norman Tolman. And he owns the Tolman Galleries in Tokyo. And um, obviously this gallery owner went to have dinner with him one evening, saw my work in his collection and decided to commission some for her own. So um, communication was made during this crazy time of lockdown Amazing. and I started the commission. There is a but, they all have to be read. They all have to be read? They all have to be read, which is understandable because Japan seems to be a very traditional kind of society and although they have great art and fantastic artists, they lean to more, more towards the natural earthy tones and earthy colors. So not bright red, but there's definitely that ox red kind of brown element that's going on in the work. 
And um, they love like cherry blossoms, which is not surprising because you know, Kyoto is the home of the cherry blossom. So anything with a little bit of pink in it or has the title cherry blossom, especially if you're in the decor industry, seems to be working for me. Magic. So Tokyo calling at the moment, amazing stuff. And let's kind of look a little deeper at the process. And uh, when you're not getting specific commissioned pieces and, and specific color requests and requirements, what inspires you? I'm really hugely inspired by nature, I would say. And that's not unusual because I live in Africa and there is a painting in every view. I mean, anyone who's ever traveled to Africa, especially where I live, on the north coast of South Africa, it's just immensely beautiful and inspiration is all around us. So it just could be um, something, my early morning run and I could see um, some birds waking up and singing and getting ready for their day or I could see the sunrise over the ocean or I could just see some leaves rustling in the wind. The smallest things can set me off. Um, so that's, it's wonderful that I live so close to it and I can see it all around me. So that's kind of the inspiration would come from nature or from my travels. And you mentioned that your work is sort of divided into four quarters or spaces. What would those be? So to make the, the business model successful, you've got to put your irons in a lot of fires. So I would have, I would say 25% of my business is um, commissions where I would com be commissioned by private clients or maybe a project like a decorator or somebody who wants something. 25% yeah. would be publication, so print work based, and, and I'll earn royalties from that. 25% would be art fairs, and 25% would be gallery trade. Amazing. And do you create on spec, or do you often get a brief and then work to, towards a brief? Is there a, a bit of a combination? It's mostly I work on briefs because the how we work in the publishing world is that they would get a brief from their client and their clients would be planning up to a year, maybe 18 months in advance. Mm. And they would say, okay, the color trends for the next season is this. And they would filter these through to their artists and ask us to come up with, a, create in our space how we feel. So they, they'll never say to me, Natasha, I want um, a red rose with a green leaf. They'll say, Please make me a floral painting in your style as you wish because we're buying your name. We're not buying the particular image. And then can we please have it in these tones? So you do have a lot of leeway and um, you've got that, that uh, element of freedom that you can play with. Now, you received a brief and uh, a, a lot of aspiring artists listening to this would just love to get to that stage where you start getting briefs. <laughs> People know you. They Not know, always. They know your style. <laughs> yeah, it's, I suppose, a double-edged sword. But um, let's assume that you've, you've, you've received a brief, like the ones that you're currently working on right now. How do, you, how do you begin? How do you start? So you kind of, one of the most important things about commissions and briefs is you've got to know your client. You've got to know your client really well. And that's the relationship you have with that client. So you get to trust each other. Trust is a huge part of our business. And you know what they expect from you, the level of service, the level of commitment, and you get to, into their head and they get into your head. They show you pictures and images. And when you start to deliver work and they realize, but hang on, we can trust this Natasha Barnes person. We give her a brief. We ask her to create 10 new images for our next summer range. We give her a little bit of freedom she does her thing. She doesn't let us down. 
that that element of trust and cooperation and sharing becomes vital. So that when you give that to the artist, the artist, there's no restraint. And so for me, I can paint without any strings attached and your creativity flows so much easier when that is available to you. But when you say to me, Natasha, you've got to paint me a yellow rose and it's got to look exactly like this. I can't do that. And that's where there's a great symbiosis between the artist and the person that you're doing the project for. And that is how you should tackle all your business in the art world. So it's not a one-sided, one-dimensional dynamic no, at all. No, you, you work as a team. Now, I'm an appreciator of art. I'm a, a lover of art. I'm a fan of, uh, of artists, and I'm a fan of yours. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you, Mark. That's why I'm here. <laughs> but um, I'm fascinated by the nitty-gritty, the actual, the how-to, behind the scenes. What materials do you work with? What materials do you use? And uh, what do you actually, what do you paint with? Is it... Is it oil? Oil paints? No, I'm an acrylic artist because, um, you know, I live in Durban and it's very humid down here and it takes a long time for oils to dry. So if you work in the commercial space that I work in and you have to do work that has to ship by the end of the week for a project, let's say for a hotel in Dubai, or maybe it's got to go to Canada for some reason, you need to be able to roll that painting up, put it in the tube and send it by Friday. You can't do that when you're working with oils because it takes longer to dry. And also the health benefits of working with acrylic is slightly better than when you're working with oil long term. So I like acrylic because I like the flat planes of color that it gives. It's also a very hardy um, medium. And I also love the new psychedelic colors that you get and the fun things that you can do with acrylic. And one of the greatest uh, assets for acrylic is that it can you can use it as a mixed media and it can just be absolutely amazing. You can mix it with all sorts of mediums and, and crayons and all sorts of things to really get in there and, and experiment and just have fun. It's a very versatile option. Yes, it is. It is very versatile. What is acrylic? Is it a, a it's plastic? A plastic-based yeah. paint. So it was made very popular in the sixties by the pop artists. They yes. first started to use acrylic paint and. Um, I think the manufacturer thought, hmm, these guys are onto something. They're just using good old PVA. <laughs> Let's put it in a tube and sell it. But today, it's a, it's a, it took a long time for acrylic to be accepted as a medium, um, like a fine art medium. But today, it's um, very, very well received, and a lot of artists um, use acrylic today. It's just, it's just because of the drying time, and it's, it's easy, especially if you play in the commercial field. And you talked about the ability to have a sort of a quick turnaround as opposed to working in, in oils if you have to ship something. Typically, how long does it take you to make a painting, one of your typical sized pieces? I mean, you work in some, some interesting dimensions, but uh, on average, what are we talking about? So that's such an interesting question, Mark, because it's the one I get most often <laughs> from clients. How, how, how soon can I have it? <laughs> um, I should really say that the answer must be 25 years. Because you kind of work towards something, and I'm now a master at my craft, but it's taken me 25 years to actually learn how to get there. Sure, that's an honest answer. (laughs) (laughs) So that is the real answer. But to give it, to put it into perspective, in my studio, I always paint or work on more than one piece at a time because I like the work to flow, and I also want there to be cohesion, especially if you're painting, let's say, a series of works or you need the same color tones and you need the same sort of 
handwriting on the painting. So when I, when I say handwriting, I mean you want those, those mark-making strokes that you're doing on that day to be carried on to all your work so there is a cohesion and a body of work. Yeah. So I would start on about, um, I'd have about six paintings up, um, canvases. And as you can see, I've got lots of dry walls, big white walls in my studio. And I would staple the canvas to the drywall. And this would be done the, the night before. Wow. And then I would um, get some texture, some texture paint, which I like to add to my canvas, just to give it a bit of a tooth and to create some ridges and some interesting sort of little cracks and, and crevices where the paint can be pushed into and just something that gives a nice visual effect. Yeah. So the evening before, I would then set out and I would put the textured paint on and I would... Uh, tape the, the borders around the canvas because it's very, very important that when you have finished your artwork that it is ready for presentation and that it is spotless. The canvas has to be spotless around the edge. It's got to look like it's got a beautiful white border on so that the client, being it your client who's coming to purchase it from your studio or even if it's uh, going off to a gallery, when they unroll that tube and they see the artwork, there's this beautiful, clean, crisp border around it, and it presents the work more professional. Very important. Wow, there's a pro tip you're getting here. So listen close. There's more to follow. <laughs> so um, I would then uh, put all the paste on, get it all ready, and then the next morning when I walk into the studio, uh, it's ready for me. I'm not going to waste time doing prep. Because by the time I've got all the canvases stapled to the wall and I've put the paste on and I've put the tape on, I've wasted two hours. And then I'm thinking, oh my goodness, 11 o'clock, you know what? I've been just faffing all morning doing nothing. It's not good enough. You must get in the morning, in into your studio in the morning and you must be ready and organized. Being organized in this line of work is, is very important. And then you start painting straight away. Because I'm one of the, I'm a morning person. So the longer the day goes, the, the more I lose concentration. So I never paint, or when I say never, it's very rare for me to paint past uh, lunchtime. So you'll never find me in the studio in the afternoons, and I have never in the history of my career painted at night. Really? Never. And don't plan on changing that anytime no, soon? I'm not that person. <laughs> you know yourself. You've you got you to gotta know yourself if you're an artist. <laughs> Your art quite often gets that label applied to it, abstract art. And when it comes to categorizing things and putting them into sort of uh, collections and, and boxes, that's a label that, that I suppose one could use. And to the uninitiated, um, to the uninformed buyer, uh, you, I'm sure, have had uh, someone come up to you and say, I could do that, right? I mean... I mean, how hard is it really? What oh, do you say? What do you say to those people? If I had a dollar for every time I heard that, I think I could retire. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mike, I have a lot of people saying to me, abstract arts, my daughter can do this or I can do that. But you can't. That's the thing. It is the hardest, hardest form of art because just like anything else, it's got to have balance. It's got to have composition. It's got to have freedom. And you've got to be a very strong in your brand and your personality to be able to play in the space and take rejection. I, I always say, and I put this out on social media one day, I said, to be a successful artist, you need to face rejection every day of your life. So rejection can be someone saying to me, but I can do that. And the, the reality is you, you can't. 
it is just a very hard form of art and a very you have to be very disciplined. It's not just about splashing paint around. And if you really delve into any abstract artist's career and look behind the scenes, you would have noticed that they are very capable of having um, a contemporary career or they perhaps started as a, a more serious contemporary artist and then delved and moved on into the more abstract form. I myself started my career as a contemporary artist. And I'll never forget, um, it was in the early days, and I was in New York. It was about the second time I'd been exhibiting in New York. And in those days, I used to attend a fair in Manhattan called the Art Expo. It was fantastic. Art Expo, there used to be uh, 63,000 works of art. So if you can imagine walking through a venue with so much art to be bought and the choices that these people had. I mean, 600 booths, something like 3,000 artists represented. It was fantastic. And I did that fair for about 15 years, I think. I was, you know, it was a good 15 years that I attended that fair. And all the business I ever did stateside actually originated from that fair back in the early days. But... Anyway, the story, what I wanted to say is that I went off to one of these fairs. It was a really gloomy day and I'd um, packed up and I was waiting for my flight, but I had a few hours. So I ended up in the Metropolitan Museum of of Art and I wandered into the modern art section and there in front of me was a Robert Motherwell painting, abstract artist. And you know when something hits you like a lightning bolt, I suppose like when you meet the one, yeah. Mike. I know you can, you can attest to this, but me, maybe not. <laughs> but when you meet the one and you think, oh my goodness, this lightning bolt has just gone through me. And that's the feeling I got when I saw this painting. And I sat there for hours just staring at it until I was ready to go and take my flight home. And I got off the aeroplane at um, O.R. Tambo in Johannesburg. And I said to my mother, I said, you know what? I'm going to become an abstract artist and that's what I'm going to paint. And everybody was absolutely horrified. Like, how can you? You know, you're so good at what you do. You do the most beautiful watercolors. Carry on. Don't give it up. And I didn't touch another contemporary painting for about 15 years. I just painted the abstract um, and it just, it was me. I'd found my home. Incredible. What was it about that particular Motherwell piece that struck such a powerful chord with you? You know, the funny thing is, I've often thought about that. Um, it was black and white, black and white, and it had kind of like circular flat planes of black paint on it. And when I look back at all my art, everything sort of has a bit of a circle in it. And I think in many ways, it's it's like, it means completion or just life, what goes around comes around. I mean, there can be so many different explanations as to why I'm drawn to circles, which is really odd because in my own life, like I can't stand architecture that has, a, that has an arch in it. That if, if I walk into a house or in, in my own home, if a doorway has an arch, all I want to do is just lob it off and fill it up. It's got to be square. <laughs> but my art, I love circles and I love... Um, the kind of completion, and I love the shape of a water lily or a lotus flower leaf. It, it just it brings such inspiration to me. I cannot explain it. You can't always 
define that thing. But uh, when it when it speaks to you, when it strikes you like a lightning bolt, when it resonates so powerfully, you 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 have to go in that direction. You have to follow that muse, right? Yeah, you absolutely have to. And I I don't regret it one minute. Because my mark making is what made me. It's it's where I found my passion. And no matter how many people said, oh, don't go down this road. You're never going to make any money. You know, who's going to buy your art? It just went from strength to strength to strength to strength. And I'm I'm still learning every day. It's, it's, not, it's a continuous process. I'm still changing every day. It's a journey. Mm. It's not just a case of, oh, okay, I know my trade. What's next? And every morning I go into my studio and I'm faced with that white canvas, which is another question everyone asks me. How do you know what to paint? I kind of just start with my first stroke, which is usually black. Um, I use a lot of black as the underpaint, and it, it leads me into the work, and then I start to layer. So I work from dark to light, whereas there's a lot of artists that work from light to dark. So it's kind of the reverse. And it's my process. So I can go in, and I can, can completely switch off and be in my zone and paint the entire painting from start to finish in a given time. And the, the radio is playing, um, you know, the cats are running around, someone might be in my garden mowing the lawn. All these things are happening, but I'm living in this space that I've created for myself, which is my happy place, but more so it's where I feel comfortable because it's where I've taught myself to go to create and to finish the job. And how do you know when a painting is finished? When it doesn't worry you anymore. So that is another question that if I had uh, a dollar for every time I got asked that. <laughs> Sorry, I had to ask it. <laughs> You're welcome. So as you go along and you become more confident in your work, you will realize there comes a point where you can create your own work and that is because your eye is so trained. I can look at a painting of mine and with one glance, even if I'm painting in the studio and I come back into the house to make a cup of coffee and I go back to the studio and I see it again after just spending an hour on it and I've been away for 30 seconds, I can tell you exactly what's wrong with that painting or what it needs. So it's the same thing when you walk into the studio in the morning and nothing worries you, you know the painting's finished. So I would paint and sometimes... When I'm battling and I think, oh gosh, this I can't get this right. I don't know what's going on here. I leave the painting until the next morning. And when I walk in and I open that door, I can see immediately what, what it needs. Sometimes just the tiniest, tiniest little pencil line can change the whole look of a painting. But So to get back to your question, I think it's experience tells me when a painting is finished. Good answer. And you are not afraid to tackle large, large pieces. How do you paint such big works? Oh, I love painting large pieces. It's my favorite thing. And I wish I could sell just large paintings because <laughs> it's just, it's so expressive. And, you know, you just have all these visions of you like dipping your hair into paint and rolling on the canvas <laughs> or something crazy. You haven't done that, have you? No, I haven't, but I thought about it. I thought, well, they will make a nice movie. Yeah. <laughs> so um, for me, I find it easier. I have a... a a colleague and he makes all my canvas for me um he's here every week sometimes three times a week bringing canvas and taking it away taking it off the stretches into the tubes to be shipped abroad 
So um, I get really large stretcher bars and we have two strong men that carry it into my studio and then I paint the really large pieces and then he comes and fetches them again and takes them away, takes them off, restretches the canvas and brings it back to me. So a lot of time is wasted if you're doing all this yourself. Yeah. I don't have time for that. I need to work. And once again, the pie is big enough for all of us to eat. So I'm a huge believer that there is something that we can all do to contribute towards each other's livings. So I'm an artist, let me paint. He's a framer and he makes canvas, let him make my canvas. I don't want to take his job away from him. I don't want to cut into his pie. And he employs um, three or four local lads that ha- help him make the canvas because, you know, South Africa, we tip of the earth. We get good supplies, but a lot of it comes from abroad, takes a long time to get here. Mm. So we have a lot of our own canvas manufacturers where they have these small little family-run businesses, and this is who I use. And then he in turn supports uh, a couple of local lads, and they can support their families. So it's all a symbiosis, and um, I find that I need the help. I can't spend all day with logistics. And the same goes for, for art supplies. Um, I phone up my local store, I've got a delivery guy that I send all over the place to fetch and carry, deliver for me and bring my paints and paper. And how many works on average do you do, you tackle in a year or in a week for that matter? You know, one day I'm going to count them. (laughs) I think it'll run into the thousands because (laughs) I tell you what, the other day I was looking through my database for a particular image that someone wanted for a poster and, uh, Oh, gosh, I, I saw work there that I didn't even know I painted. Um, so really? <laughs> it's difficult. One of the, the big things is I think you've got to divide the work into two. So I have an agent in America that I met very early on in my career, and it was a huge game changer for me because not only did she get me into every state in in the United States? And you must remember that every state in America is like a country. So it's Mm. it's a huge market and just swallows art. I could sit all day, every day and just paint for her and um, never have to do anything else, which is kind of what I've done throughout my career. (laughs) If we're being honest. If I'm being honest, um, it does become a little soul-destroying because you – you have a certain deadline. So you're always on a deadline because the next roll of canvas has to go off and you, it's a business, you know? It, I have to be honest, you run your, your art like a business. Yeah. But you've got to remember that you've got to put out a really good quality product. You can't just be slapdash. People are paying a lot of money for your art. You have to offer them the best possible service. That artwork has to be quality. You have to use good materials and you have to. it has to be clean. It has to be presented beautifully. And it has to have value for that client. So I do a lot of that kind of work, which goes to my agents. And um, I have an agent as well in in the UK now. And I have a very large um, supplier that I supply in Australia. So those are what I call my bread and butter paintings. And it's it's the wrong term for it because everybody wants to know that their painting was specially made for them. And yes, it was. It was made in my studio, specially for you. And my agent sold it on to you or your gallery or whoever is using the work. And then there's the 50% of my, of my work that I do for myself. So I would sit and I would paint. Like during lockdown, I've done a lot of paintings for myself. And I've thought, oh, you know, I've always wanted to paint a green painting. Bright mm. emerald green. 
And I did one, and I absolutely love it. And one day it will find a home, and it will find someone that loves it as, as much as I do. And I did some yellow paintings, which is another <laughs> thing that it's not a big seller, but um, they will find a home. So it gives me great enjoyment sometimes just to paint for myself. But mainly, if I had to count how many paintings I've done per year, uh, I would say... Truthfully speaking, about 15 to 20 a month. Wow. That's a solid output. It's a marathon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love marathon running. <laughs> yeah, well, if you missed the first, the first podcast, we got into that as well. And if you did miss the first podcast, how long have you been painting professionally? Maybe not necessarily even at this rate, but, but how long have you been in the, the commercial game for? 25 years. And to be honest, the beginning was harder than the end. So when I say harder, back in the day, in 1997, 98, I would get orders for 30 to 35 paintings at a time from the agents in America. Sure. So it was hard going and it took a lot of discipline. Sometimes, you know, I would, I remember once I, I went on holiday to Hawaii and they discovered I was in America. And she said, oh, just get some art supplies and just paint on your holiday. And, and when you're finished, you can give it to us. And she was being dead serious. <laughs> like, but that's not a holiday. <laughs> well, uh, you know, you're young and you're naive and you think, oh, okay, I'll do this for you. And I, I did. <laughs> almost killed myself. But that's the kind of thing, you know, I worked very, very hard in the beginning of my career to get where I am today. Extremely hard. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it, is it true you're one of South Africa's most published artists? Um, yes, and I'm quite proud of that. That's Thank amazing. you very much. Thank Ooh, you. What does that actually mean, to be published? So to be published is um, people ask me for my artwork and then they buy the license to put the artwork onto posters and to do limited and open edition prints. So during my career... Um, at the height of the publication, I, I had more than 16 international print publishers. And wow. so they would, um, you'd form relationships with these people and your work would, would go into their catalogs and on their websites. The nature of publishing has changed immensely. Every time this, the world has been through a crisis, it's changed and it's about to change again. But um, back in the day, it would, it would be along the lines of doing a big project. They would phone me up and say, Oh, in those days, actually, they'd fax, you know. <laughs> there was no email. Um, or they'd see you at these art fairs and you'd discuss the brief and they would give you um, the colors for the next season and you would do some work for them and then they would make posters or, or I call prints, but other people call posters. And the next thing, FedEx would arrive at your door and you would get your free posters that you could sell. And I used to get all these tubes and tubes of, of artwork. I had so many of these prints. I never sold them uh, Commercially, I just kept them. And then one day I just donated the whole lot to, I think, uh, the uh, police stations around South Africa and they were going to hang them in their trauma units. So I don't quite ever know what happened to my library of... Wow. But there was a lot. Amazing. And looking at the current studio, the current state of the studio, and it, it seems like you've, you're, you're in the middle of a, a whole bunch of stuff going on right now. How do you decide what to paint? So, um, how do I know what to paint? So, the client kind of gives me a little bit of a, a lead. They'll normally contact me on social media or maybe by email and they say, I saw a painting in a shop or I saw something on TV or wherever they may have come across my work. 
And I love that. And then I'd go and look what they saw and I'd go, mm, okay, so I've got a kind of reference in my mind. Mm. But with abstract, especially with me, I am so abstract. I can never <laughs> repeat anything. I have tried to repeat paintings and you should never repeat them. But when a client says, oh, I love it and I love the little bit of blue in the corner. Well, that's not going to happen. Uh, <laughs> it's really hard. Um, and it's mainly because I don't actually paint from reference. So even if I was painting a house or if I was painting a flower or a train or whatever you asked me to paint, I wouldn't be looking at a picture of it just because I haven't got that vision or yeah. that ability to translate what I see on paper to my canvas. I'm just not that artist where other people have got that talent and that is incredible. I wish I could, but I can't. So when I walk in in the morning, I've just got an idea, like, um, as you mentioned, I'm busy with these, uh, the series of paintings for a uh, gallery in Tokyo, and she sent me an image of a painting she loved of mine. It's a very old painting, but immediately I knew what this woman wanted. I could get into her head, and I realized that this is where she's leaning so I've really had to dig very deep to do this commission because it's an older style and you move on. Like you kind of, you, you want to go wild. I just want to scrape into it and just and splash paint, but I've got to control myself. So that's been a little bit uh, challenging and yet it's made me think out the box. And today I finished one of the pieces and I thought, hmm, you know, Natasha, you can still do this. <laughs> so I was very pleased. I will always take the client's lead. The client would say, um, I'm looking for blues or greys or whatever, and I'm always happy to um, oblige because people say, oh, you should never sell art to match the curtains. Well, I have to confess, <laughs> can you see my home? Yeah, yeah. It's all blendy, blendy, and when I put up my artwork, I thought, mm, this is going to match the curtain. <laughs> <laughs> we all want something of harmony. Yeah. But um, if I was painting for an art fair, for example, uh, I would do something for myself where I thought, okay, I'm going to paint something crazy, I'm loving this, I would take that painting and I would build the entire fair content around one painting. So I would paint, let's say, a nice big blue abstract, and then I would build on it so that when you as a visitor visit my stand, you see this cohesion and this body of work that all sits well together. I'm not worried about showing them how much I can do. I'm worried, I'm more... Um, interested in giving the clients that experience of visiting my booth and if they're not looking for a blue painting but they're wanting a pink one then I might have one in the store or I might actually have one that I can show them at home so painting if I'm doing it for myself I just choose a color in the morning if I'm doing it for a client I'm following their brief and do you do it every day I do not and you know why because life happens <laughs> and you know this is one of the things that we, we always forget. You kind of always beat yourself up because, oh my goodness, I didn't paint today. I didn't, I didn't work. I feel so bad. Like this morning, this is a, a wonderful um, example. I mean, I was on the phone this morning since nine o'clock with a colleague in Cape Town and we were doing social media um, review and I was helping her and I was, and she was sort of critting my social media. And then I had to quickly get ready because I knew you were coming and I was like, oh, my goodness, I haven't painted. What, what's going to happen? And then you have to take a step back and realize life happens. And this is working. I'm working right now because this is going to be the future. This is how I brand myself. So as long as you do something each day that contributes towards the bigger picture, that is great. But you've got to remember, and you mustn't beat yourself up about it, life has to go on. 
you have to pay the bills, you've got to go to the grocery store, you've got to do the school run, you've got to be able to do those things and take time for yourself. And this took me a long time to to reconcile because for many years my life was all about work and a lot of people say judge your success by what you had to give up in order to obtain it. So in my case, I never did get married, I never had a family, um, I never followed a more traditional life and I'm, I'm not um, making excuses now and I'm also not um, regretting anything at all but my early years of building my career were super intense and it was about that. Mm. So today I'm taking it a little bit easier and I'm more gentle on myself because I've got where I want to be. And do you find that in order for you to continue to produce at the level that you do, you actually need that downtime, you need to take a moment to, to relax, recharge, to find inspiration. Do you find that it's actually an essential part of your process as well? Absolutely. You know, for many years I didn't even have a TV because I didn't like watching TV. So um, one day somebody suggested that I buy a TV because it will stop me working so hard. So <laughs> I, d- I did that. And I must admit, I've been very disciplined. Um, it's only lately that Netflix has arrived on the scene that I find myself lying on the couch uh-huh, more, yeah. <laughs> more than I should. But the early days, I mean, there's so many repeats on TV. I've, you know, put it on at five o'clock sort of thing. Um, so that is important. And then what actually happened next was I realized that I needed to get out more. Because you can only inspire yourself so much within your home. Mm. And I, I go to work in my studio, which is attached to my home, they can go entire weeks can go by where I see no one. Um, and I think it's important to, to be social. So when I was younger, I was a fantastic runner and, you know, I did all these wonderful sports at, and things at school. And, and then when I was in my twenties, I was still an avid runner. And then I took a, a break for many, many years. And eventually a friend of mine said, you know, Natasha, maybe you should find something to do on the weekends because you're always painting on weekends. <laughs> And I said, yeah, but you know, on weekends, it's fantastic because no one interrupts you and there's no lawnmower going and there's no screaming neighbors. And it's just, you can, you can get work done. The phone doesn't ring. And um, they suggested I take up running, which initially I thought, oh, well, you know, let me give it another try. And of course, hook, line and sinker about eight years later, <laughs> it's uh, absolutely one of my most favorite things to do in the world. I want to ask the kind of, this might seem like a silly question or the obvious question, but I'm sure it's a question that you get on a fairly regular basis. Can you really make a living from art? Do you make a living from art? Oh, Mark, this is a question I get as well. And I tell you what, it's the most rewarding living you could ever earn. It takes discipline. If you are someone that can color within the lines and that and someone who is prepared to put the work in and run it like any other business you will make such a healthy living it will frighten you it's the most rewarding fantastic job you've got such freedom you know I once sat on an airplane flying back from Johannesburg to Durban next to this wonderful man he'd just been to Mecca and uh, he said to me so what do you do for a living? And I said to him, oh, I'm an artist, a painter. And he was an old little man and he sat staring out the window and he looked at me and he said, so God has given you your freedom. And I thought, 
Gosh, that's an interesting way of, of putting it. Yeah. He said, so you can do anything you like. So you've got talent and you can work from anywhere in the world. And, you know, I'm not a particularly religious person, but that stuck with me, that kind of I've been given this opportunity to earn my living in this most amazing way. I've been very disciplined about it. And in 25 years, almost two decades of earning my living as an artist, I've never had to look to any other source and in fact, I support many other families as well. Fantastic. And how do you, I mean, this has got to be one of those other obvious questions that you get asked a lot. How do you know what to charge for an artwork? So, you know, people always come to you and they say, um, if I buy this painting and you become famous, I'm going to make money off you. Uh, <laughs> First you say, I, actually, I am quite, quite famous. <laughs> I'm quite well known. <laughs> the answer is No. Unless you're Picasso, no art's going to be an investment. You you just can never tell what's going to happen in the world. But there's kind of a, a set formula or a set price for good quality contemporary art. And we're all on the same playing fields. So if I'm going to be out there and I'm selling my work for five times more than everyone else in my contemporary playing field, I'm never going to sell a painting. But... When you're buying my art, and it is, my art is expensive, it's because you have been with me or you've seen my career progress over the last 25 years. It's like when you walk into a doctor and, or into um, a hairdresser and she charges you X amount of money, she didn't qualify yesterday. You know, your doctor didn't qualify during lockdown and he <laughs> says, okay, you know, I'm, I'm worth this now. It's it's a progression and you start somewhere and eventually your work, it's, it's a demand thing, but you also have to be very careful. Remember, you're only as good as your last painting. And if you've got a huge ego, you're going to get nowhere. You've got to be humble about your gift and humble about your business and humble about what you, what the prices are that you ask people and you've got to be consistent. So to answer your question, um, it's kind of a progression and I am where I am now because of my experience. And you, you said earlier in the podcast that as a medium, you favor acrylics over oil paints. Do you only paint in acrylics or do you work in mixed media? I like to work in mixed media sometimes, and that would include spray paint, it would include charcoal and pastel and crayon. But one of my favorite mediums, and I use it as a purist medium, is watercolor. It's very therapeutic. And you know... When you go into the studios in the morning, you, you're not always on your A game. Like I try and explain this to people when, when I run in the mornings. They always say to me, so Natasha, how much out of 10 did you paint yesterday? And I said, oh, I painted a 5 out of 10. <laughs> so we all know that a 5 out of 10 is um, it's good enough to sell. It's a pass, right? <laughs> it's, it, you pass. It's good enough to sell. Um, it's probably a little decorative and it's going to match the curtains just fine and no one's going to know the difference. But as an artist and someone that's highly critical of my own work, I would see it as a 5 out of 10. Some mornings you go into the studio and you paint a 10 out of 10. And those mornings are rare because 10 out of 10s is those days where you think you are Picasso. <laughs> and on those days that I am Picasso, I try and paint or start as many paintings as I can because then um, – they've already got the bones to them. And when the painting has got good bones, it doesn't take much to finish them. 
So I had a 10 out of 10 uh, recently when I started the Tokyo series. Yeah. And then I left them for a long time because I wasn't quite ready to go back. And I want to deliver a good body of work for these people. So I kind of left it until I felt in the 10 out of 10 mood, which happened to be this morning, but now I've got other work to do. So you can never tell. And that's the nature of art. But as long as you're doing something positive every day. So what I do with the watercolors, I do obviously acrylic and mixed media on canvas. And then I've got piles and piles of paper and watercolor with all my painting, I stand and paint, okay? I don't have any stools. I don't sit around. But with watercolor, I like to sit. So I've got a little stepladder that I sit on that doubles up as a chair. And Tabu's always there. He's either drinking the water, walking over the painting, or sitting next to me. Um, and he has been known to sink his claws and his teeth in, into my jeans while I'm not even aware that he's going to do it. And you get the hell of a fright. As long as it's not into the canvas, it's, it's okay. Oh, he's been known to put a few holes. To leave his things. mark. Yeah, they thought it was you. <laughs> um, and those days that, you, that you, off, you know you've got to work because it's a business and you've got to keep everything rolling. Because remember, Mark, the painting that you paint today, right, is your income in 18 months' time. Because that is the lifespan of artwork. So... People are going to think I'm crazy. Oh, my goodness, I sell my art within a week or two days. But if you really take, if you take a body of work and you put it into a gallery, by the time you've shipped the work to the gallery and the gallery's had it framed and they've put it into the exhibition and then the client took it on APRA and then the client brought it back and then they put it back in the gallery and then it went back into the store and then it went into the Christmas exhibition and then it sold and then it, they took three months to pay you, which is normal. And then you think, oh my goodness, that took me 18 months to sell that painting. So if I don't work today, I'm not going to have an income in 18 months' time. It doesn't matter. And you can lie and watch TV and as much Netflix as you want. Yeah. But next year is the drama. It's going to happen next year. The chickens come home the to roost. Next year. <laughs> so on those days where I need to feed those chickens, I do watercolor paper and paintings and I just go into the studio because it's very therapeutic you don't need to think too much and I play with them and I just do 20 at a time where I, I layer the work and I put them out and of course the cats are running all over them and it's chaos and then they dry overnight and I go in and I put another layer the next day and at the end of a weekend or by, by Wednesday I've done a beautiful body of work but it hasn't taken as much out of me as it would have if I was doing a big collection of canvases or important work. I hear you. So we're doing this this kind of introductory series, getting to know you as an artist, as a, a businesswoman, and, uh, and a brand as well. And I want to find out, in our next podcast episode, we're going to be heading off to the art fairs with you and finding out how you actually sell your art. But when you are traveling... And, uh, and attending art fairs and uh, getting around. How do you find time to paint with all, with all your travels and art fairs? Do you have to put stuff on hold for a, a chunk of time and, and schedule your creativity and your, your production around the, the actual art fair selling? So, Mark, one of the most interesting things, and this is something that um, has really come to the forefront for me, is that the art fairs are a huge part of my creativity, and it's not so much that I'm standing around there looking at other people's art coming home and knocking it off. That's not, nothing to do with that. It's 
the interaction with people and the interaction with other artists and just the notion of being in a foreign environment. So I find that the longer I stay at home, the, the, the longer period I am at home, the less I paint. So when I do travel, which is seven times a year normally, I do six international art fairs a year and I've been doing that for 25 years. And what happens is, is that I go to the fair and I come back rejuvenated. So the moment I've unpacked that suitcase, okay, and, the, and that washing is in the washing machine, <laughs> I'm in the studio because I've just got all these things going through my head and this energy. And I pour that energy out into my, into my canvas. And you also got to remember that when you travel so much and when you work for these fairs, it's a bit like the magazine industry, if you know the magazine industry. They work three months in advance. So for me... I would be painting now if, if this was a normal year, okay? So we're in July. I would be painting now for Singapore, which is my fair in November. But the work for London and the, my work for America was already done in February and March. And that would already be at the venue, not the venue, but in my store, my storage units, or it will be on its way to the framers, or it will be sh on a ship in a crate or with FedEx or waiting to be shipped in my studio. And the collections have already been put together. And they quite thought, you know, you have to think through all of these things. So those three weeks, because sometimes, especially in the early days, there were little more than three weeks between these shows. And at, at one stage, I was doing a lot of um, ultra running. And um, I, I mean, you know, your mum is an ultra runner as well, <laughs> and a great friend of mine. And yeah. we, were, we were training for a particularly hard marathon um, up and over a, a mountain last year. So it was kind of, I was trying to balance traveling, doing the fair, coming back, painting in those three weeks before I had the next event or um, even just because, obviously, with the ultra marathon, I had to go and do these these multiple events before, so I could be fit, um, or the or the next art fair. And um, it's funny that you are so inspired and so energized that you you're able to pour this out onto the canvas in those periods between, and then you just leave it on the side. And when you come back from the fair or from your travels or from your December vacation. You look at it and you think, wow, what a great collection of work. So I've never been in a place where I thought I haven't got enough work. Listen, <laughs> now that you've you've gotten a taste of how things work around the, the art fairs, that's where we're heading next in our third podcast as we, we head off to the fair and find out how you actually sell your art and you're getting the inside story from an artist who has sold her fair share of paintings at international art fairs and galleries around the world, Natasha Barnes, the artist. And Natasha, thank you for giving us these pearls of wisdom. I mean, for letting us into your studio and uh, we'll be visiting you again, taking a sort of a virtual or mental uh, trip to some of the, the interesting and exotic art fairs around the world. What do you say? Absolutely. See you in the next podcast.